Hello, and welcome to The History Voyager, a podcast about history. My name is Benjamin Kitchings. As always, thank you very, very much for listening to my podcast. There are a zillion of them out there. Okay, I thought I would talk today about essentially part 14 of my deep dive into the Spanish flu pandemic of 1918. But I think I'm going to juxtapose it, or compare it, if you will, to COVID-19 a little bit. Now, it's fair to say that COVID-19 is essentially, if not endemic in America, certainly getting that way. Now, that's important. That's an important milestone. The reason that's important is because when a disease becomes endemic, it fundamentally shifts on a DNA level. You should know that viruses have about a two-week lifespan. And so every two weeks, viruses change. And so if a new virus comes along, and they believe now that COVID-19 is in fact very new. So if a new virus comes along, every two weeks it's going to change dramatically. So that's what they think is going on now. Now, recently, the Florida Marlins baseball team had an outbreak of COVID-19 connected to, they believe, a strip club in Atlanta. So what you need to understand about that is COVID-19 is one of these diseases when it first got into the public consciousness, it was only supposed to be able to affect elderly and essentially immunocompromised folks and people with a list of pre-existing conditions. Well, now you're attacking basically athletes. So that's significant. That's very significant. Also, we now know that children are are effective carriers of COVID-19 and they can carry a bigger viral load than adults and be very asymptomatic. We also now know that COVID-19 can spread through an air conditioning unit. And by the way, on top of COVID-19 and on top of all this, we have the largest and most severe economic downturn in American history. So, you know, how's your summer going? All right. So let's start off like this. The powers that be in this country have essentially decided that school is going to open as normal as possible. And personally, I'm wondering how normal that's going to be because we now understand, or those of us who keep up with this understand, that children spread a very large asymptomatic viral load, that COVID-19 actually spreads through an air conditioner. So to me, and having been through high school and middle school and elementary school, I mean, social distancing in in a school is not possible. It's not really possible at all. I suppose the central question for future historians is going to be, how in the world did COVID-19 bedevil us so? What happened that this once powerful nation, which rightly is powerful and will be powerful again, how did we become bedeviled by COVID-19. 
when so much of the so-called developed world essentially handled it quite readily. I think you have to look at how 1918 was handled. Most people think of the 1918 virus as something that has come to them essentially as one package deal. Essentially that it was never really in controversy that the 1918 virus was in fact the flu. However, the knowledge moved quite a great deal, as all knowledge does actually move. In this episode of my podcast, I'm going to stitch together several episodes of knowledge moving and basically eras in time existing simultaneously. The analogy I hear all the time is that it's 1918 now. And what they're doing is they're comparing it to the Spanish flu, because, believe it or not, that's kind of in people's imagination now. And I say, actually, no, I don't think it is 1918 in the analogy. I think it's more 1917 or 1915. Now, let me tell you exactly what I mean by that. There was an elderly doctor who was a country doctor in Kansas in the first two decades of the 20th century. And actually, he had been practicing in Kansas for many, many years. But we're going to focus now on the first two decades of the 20th century. This old man was a fellow named Loring Milner, who only relatively recently has come to light. And he wrote letters to the Harvard Medical School, which complicate the narrative of the Spanish flu quite significantly. Before these letters were essentially rediscovered, and also before some disease outbreaks in North America in the 2010s, the medical establishment in the world was essentially quite comfortable with thinking of the 1918 flu pandemic as a flu. Now they're not so sure. Loring Milner was a country doctor who was very unique for his day in that he was very much somebody who was very up on the modern or the then modern thinking of the day as far as medical concerns go. He was writing to his son who was in Harvard Medical School and his son was sending him articles and he was essentially re-educating himself basically all the time about modern thinking as far as diseases. Historians differ as to when he started writing these letters, probably because the letters themselves, the dates in the letters might have smudged. But either in 1915 or 1917, Loring Milner started writing letters to the Harvard Medical School itself. And he was writing about this spate of illnesses and basically people who would essentially hemorrhage so violently that their face would turn black or their feet would turn black. And he was writing about towns and places like farmsteads where all of the people had died mysteriously. And they all had the, this black appearance in their face from the, the blood vessels in their face basically exploding. He presumed from coughing so violently. He would also talk about people seizing in these 
uh, letters. Now, what's interesting is he didn't have the modern tools that we have today to be able to diagnose a seizure or, you know, something like a hemorrhage or anything. But the thing he did do for modern historians was he very much clouded the narrative of the Spanish flu. Before these letters were discovered, it was fixed in time that the Spanish flu had essentially started in 1918, and it was open for debate as to whether or not it was in China or Britain or, or Kansas. But now most people believe that it was in Kansas, and it might have appeared as early as 1915, if not before. You have to remember that Loring Milner was basically his practice was essentially very sparsely populated, and he was literally the only doctor these people were ever going to see. And he even said in his letters that I could possibly be the only doctor for miles, and basically, I mean, if I'm not seeing this, who is kind of thing. Americans today, at least a lot of Americans, are used to thinking that they live in a golden age. They're used to thinking of their country as a country that can rise to challenges with golden age tools and golden age thinking and golden age intellect. And I'm thinking, of course, as an example of this, as something like Y2K. Y2K, which was essentially in the latter part of the 20th century, was a problem with computers, which was like the computers in the early days only had two spaces to record the date so obviously with the time with the time change flip over so it was thought a whole lot of utilities and transit situations and just a whole lot of a lot of things would essentially reset and this was actually a serious problem behind the scenes but it was also a problem that was dealt with and it was dealt with effectively in most cases probably basically all cases but to the minds of the average American the average American essentially wrote this off as a hoax. And, you know, they chuckled about it politely and went about their lives. Another example of this is, of course, climate change. In America, climate change is seen as a very, very, very political issue. And it's essentially, if you're a Democrat, you believe climate change is real. And if you're a Republican, you think climate change is some flavor of a hoax. Now, here's the thing, though. You can actually look at data and you can see that the climate is shifting and it is very gradual in some cases. In some cases, it isn't gradual at all. But essentially, there's Americans are not used to thinking in terms of an existential crisis, which is something that they must rise to the challenge of. And also... They're used to also thinking that the government will handle it. And obviously, I think what we're seeing here is, if we're going to get out of this, we need to get out of it independently. We need to get out of it through community efforts, etc. And this runs in the face of what a lot of Americans think about when they think about how America solves problems. It also runs in the face, in some cases, as to whether or not it is a problem at all. Because when the coronavirus, or COVID-19, first came onto the scene in a lot of Americans' minds, it came onto the scene as the flu. 
The flu is actually, in the minds of a lot of Americans, essentially this little disease that you get, and you're in bed for a little while, and then you get over it. And also, when you get the flu, so a lot of Americans think, you know, it's something that's seasonal. Well, COVID-19, we're now learning, is, is brand new. And like the Spanish flu, the Spanish flu might not have been the flu at all, but it might have eventually evolved into something that had flu-like symptoms. So essentially, think about it like, not the flu, but think about it like, say, smallpox or the bubonic plague, something that can come and go in waves, basically. And that's something a lot more different than the seasonal flu. 1918 was haunting decades after it ended. When you actually read the accounts, the thing that strikes you is how terrifying it actually must have been. No wonder so many people who actually lived through it struggled all their lives to never talk about it ever again. No wonder it would be whispered by doctors, but never spoken of full-throatedly. No wonder the one of the major doctors who ended up having quite a distinguished career in government only reluctantly acknowledged at his retirement dinner that night the 1918 flu pandemic might not have been a flu at all. It might have been something completely different. The first thing you need to understand about the 1918 flu pandemic is, and I've said this before, but the flu went away. It literally went away. That There was next to no treatment or human amelioration almost of any kind that, that helped it or, or did anything of the sort. Um, the other thing that I think you need to understand is the 1918 flu pandemic, even though it killed millions of people, I mean, untold scores of humans died in this, in this disease pandemic, in a way we were better off as a country because in a way people were, if they weren't on the farm, they were adjacent to the farm. So they weren't as dependent on the world of wage labor and the world of salaried labor to earn their keep in this world. And I think that's, that's important. Another thing, another key difference between 1918 and today is today the average American, and even the not-so-average American, spends a lot more time adjacent to authorities of all stripes than the folks did in 1918. What that means is that a lot of things today happen essentially in spotlight, where a lot of things in 1918 essentially did not happen in the spotlight and, and were very much hidden from view. I think also there was another thing that we need to talk about when the, the difference between 1918 and today. In 1918, there was v massive amounts of ignorance about the science of disease. But the ignorance was genuine. That is, the ignorance wasn't born from firings in the government or from 
not hiring qualified people or not listening to qualified experts. And also, we very much live in the post-1918 world, which essentially means that a lot of our policy decisions as a country were formed on the basis of the 1918 flu pandemic. If you look at the laws that govern how far you should be from animals and whether or not animals should even be on your property, these are, you know, knock-on effects or, I guess, after-effects of the 1918 flu because the important thing to remember, the important thing for us all to remember, is they didn't really know what caused even the standard flu, let alone the 1918 flu. So they were looking for all kind of things. They were looking for all kind of reasons. Now, I also think we became complacent. I think the main reason COVID-19 got out of control in this country is because we got very, very complacent. From 1946 to 2001, this country essentially existed in a golden age. This was basically because we had come out ahead in World War II, and we were so far ahead that we could get very, very experimental and very, very complacent with our dominance. We could essentially allow people to believe whatever they thought. We could essentially go around allowing people to think wrong things, that is, factually incorrect things, that is, things that science and technology basically tell us aren't real or, you know, are not even unfruitful, but essentially are things that if you carry this out far enough, it literally becomes something that is actually dangerous for a society to believe. Say, for example, the flat earth, you know. We have come so far ahead since World War II that you can allow people to believe the earth is flat. That's, that's crazy to think. But it, it's also true. And also something else I've noticed is that basically what I say is, the way I say it is, the older I get, the more I've learned that not everybody paid attention in social studies class. And that has horrible knock-on effects when you get older. Because suddenly you're not exactly dealing with people that have an understanding of how the government is supposed to work or how certain institutions in society are supposed to work. Now, what does this have to do with COVID-19 and the Spanish flu? Well, what it has to do with is this. When you have a disease that is brand new and you have people that are not just skeptical of new thoughts, but that are actively hostile to them and that cling ever so hard to the closest familiar um, anecdotal understanding of what this disease is, this ends up in a problem. I'll give you an example, a non-political example of what I'm talking about. If in 2020 you believe the earth is flat, if you're not somebody who's somehow mentally compromised believing the earth is flat, in order to hold this belief, you have to hold that a whole host of authority figures and a whole host of things are essentially lying to you in some 
interlocking and strange conspiracy in order to convince you the earth is round. Now, some of you are laughing at this. Some of you are shaking your head. But the truth is that there's a whole lot of research that shows that a whole lot of people in 2020 believe the earth is flat. And this is a new phenomenon. They didn't always believe the earth was flat. Their parents and grandparents didn't believe the earth is flat. They believe the earth is flat. This is a new phenomenon that is very dangerous and terrifying. Now, why are they allowed to think that? And that's, we need to get into that thought, that they're allowed to think it. The reason they're allowed to think it is because we're so far ahead, we're so dominant, that we can have people that are otherwise healthy, otherwise basically, like there's nothing structurally wrong with their brain, right? And we can let them have ideas that are factually incorrect, almost as a mark of privilege in a society. Now, think about in terms of the Spanish flu. The Spanish flu was absolutely terrifying, but it didn't happen everywhere, and it didn't happen everywhere equally. That's something I need to say. There, there were communities that the Spanish flu didn't affect, or at least... If you died of the cold, you died of the cold. You didn't die of the Spanish flu. But there were undeniably places where the majority of people who died of the Spanish flu literally got sick in the morning and were dead by evening. And that's amazing. There were cases of people that had seizures and died. Now, it's important to understand that you're hearing this and you're hearing this as somebody who's relatively scientifically literate. Believe it or not, you're probably one of the most scientifically literate people that ever lived. The people in 1918 really didn't have the toolkit to understand what they were seeing. So it was utterly terrifying to them. Modern virologists and modern historians and basically modern epidemiologists and modern doctors especially in the 2010s, started to go back and look at the doctors on the ground at the time in 1918 and how the doctors on the ground at the time a lot of times would refer to the flu in quotation marks. And especially when Dr. Milner's letters became rediscovered in the 90s, people started to really reappraised dramatically what the flu actually was. So they also began to theorize that perhaps they settled on the name flu. And by the way, really, it's open for debate who actually settled on the name flu. But they settled on the name flu as a way to not raise alarm bells with the populace or whatever. And the name just sort of stuck. But clearly, it didn't behave like the flu and people know that today and some people even knew that then because they were suspicious of a flu being able to cause a seizure and things like that like hemorrhages and seizures and things like that but so this is an example of knowledge moving this is really an example of experts looking at knowledge and reappraising the knowledge and then moving the understanding of what the disease is. When you think about COVID-19, 
That happens in real time. Think, for example, about the knowledge that we were given that the coronavirus mainly affects the elderly or the basically immunocompromised. That's because the normal coronavirus does mainly only affect the elderly or the immunocompromised because the normal coronavirus is something that it's just something you get on the way to the cold. It's not even really anything most people need to worry about. And that's what the medical experts were thinking at the time. But now we know, obviously, or some of us hopefully know, that that's not the case. You look, for example, at the, the Florida Marlins with those people, those athletes on the Florida Marlins and how some of them are quite sick. Or the summer camp in Georgia. You know, again, people quite sick. Now look at, say, COVID-19. COVID-19 is a disease that essentially is so new that the, the knowledge of this disease is changing. Now, we live in a, in a day and age when knowledge has become democratized. And if I have a basic understanding of basic literacy, I can educate myself on some of the cutting-edge knowledge that in 1918 they wouldn't have been able to do. Because we live in a time where knowledge is siloed, that is, because we live in a time of specialization and knowledge being siloed, you can be woefully ignorant in some areas and quite proficient in others. The problem with research like this is that you need to have a general background. You need to have a general enough background that you're knowledgeable enough about demographics and a whole host of other things to be able to educate yourself and a whole host of other stuff. In education, we call this scaffolding. So because I know one thing, I can learn something else. I can scaffold another topic or another, you know, le level of expertise onto what I already know. Now also, this gets into interest level. And the fact is, not everybody is interested in doing this. Some people, because they're adjacent to a golden age, because the golden age is close enough at hand, they can remember a time when they could stop learning. And so because they can stop learning, or think they can, they've chosen to stop learning. Now, why did they choose to stop learning? Because, and here's something we did that I think is a mistake. We decided that education and job training were the same thing. Once they get to a point in their life where they're close enough or they have enough of what they need to be safe and secure and or the 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 faucet of education they believe has been cut off to them they quit learning and because they've quit learning it's like you your your mind is basically frozen in a, in a time maybe not in some ways but in some real ways it is it's you know Science moves, learning moves, things like that. I'll give you an example. When I first started college, they taught us that the Roman Empire ended one way. And then, through the course of college and through the course of education, the science of reading pollen grains moved, and the science of reading tree rings moved. And now they think, as much as anything, there was an environmental cataclysm, which, yes, the other stuff did happen, but there was an environmental cataclysm 
which essentially the Italian peninsula did not come back from. Now this flies in the face of things that are basically dogmatic, but they're dogmatic in a non-religious way, so therefore it's not really something that a lot of people think about. But it is a lot of things that people in academia think about quite a lot, actually. This scientific information about this basically environmental cataclysm, which could have been a lot of things, actually. It could have taken the form of volcanic eruptions or of bad harvests or whatever. But this environmental cataclysm essentially upended what academics thought about the Roman Empire ending for eons, essentially. Now, why am I bringing this up in a podcast about COVID-19 and the Spanish flu? The reason I'm bringing this up is because, frankly, I need to throw you an example of something that changed that isn't political in this country. This is because, essentially, our politics in this country have essentially basically become captive by half of the political system deciding to be a reactionary against change. So I need to show you that change actually does happen and it is important and that people need to think about it. Now this virus just so happened to basically get itself caught in the cogs of all this change. Now, here's the important thing to understand, and this is crucial. In 1918, there was a relatively happy ending, at least from the standpoint of everybody alive today. That is, all of us today descended from people who at least lived into childbearing age before the 1918 flu. But there were other cultures and other viruses and other pandemics that that wasn't necessarily the case. Think, for example, about Native Americans. Native Americans had a terrible reaction to our antibodies having to do with the Black Death and also, basically, the regular flu. There, there are accounts from Columbus's day of these natives coming down with what we today would know of as a fever. And they'd never had a fever, and they didn't know what a fever was, and so they would go deeper and deeper out into the ocean and actually drown themselves. Now, here's the thing about Columbus that we have to understand from a modern perspective. Christopher Columbus is what you would think of today as essentially a terrible person living in a terrible time. He wasn't exactly in the most racially progressive time, but even in his day, he wasn't thought of as anywhere near the most racially progressive person. So you have to take with a grain of salt the things he would write about the Native Americans. For example, Christopher Columbus really was on the fence as to whether or not the Native Americans were actually people. That is fascinating to think about. But, needless to say, there are enough accounts of basically Native Americans succumbing to diseases that the Europeans, essentially, that our, basically, antibodies had mastered, that there's enough evidence to suggest that the Native Americans didn't have those antibodies that we basically have to take it for granted. Why am I bringing this up? 
because herd immunity doesn't always happen. This idea that we can wait for herd immunity, frankly, especially with a new disease that we don't really understand that much about, frankly, is not exactly the brightest idea. Especially when you consider a basic biological fact that when a virus becomes endemic in a population, the virus changes. So the, the proteins in the virus move, they shift, they change. And there's a lot of evidence today that the virus, that is COVID-19, has become, has changed because it's become endemic in society. Look, for example, at the Florida Marlins. We're all old enough to remember, those of us alive in the present day, are old enough to remember when the best science was that healthy people could not get COVID-19. That is no longer true, and as evidence of this, we have the Florida Marlins. Also, they weren't supposed to be able to spread it nearly as far, nearly as, you know, to as many people in the same population. Well, with the, you know, there's a daycare, and there's also like a camp, so there's enough evidence that suggests that's no longer true, and that's especially not true with the Florida Marlins, because these are all healthy people, and they're essentially all in the same population. And basically what this has, virologists and epidemiologists and doctors and folks like me who are just somewhat interested in this for a podcast and also to basic survival, quite frankly, what we're all kind of looking at with this is, oh my God, this virus has changed. Okay, this is crazy. Now, here's another thing that's going on, and I need to give you guys another history lesson. Okay, I had this job with this organization, and I was categorizing their photographs. I was categorizing their archival photographs, and I ran across a photograph that had been miscategorized. And it was a photograph of these women and these children. And they were standing in a room. And the women, basically all the women had beehives, the beehive hairdo. And there was one child that had a t-shirt on. And the t-shirt was of an album that had come out in the late 80s by a band that had become famous after that album was released. Basically, think of it like this. There's more people alive that had that t-shirt than that had that album that the t-shirt was of. And the picture was categorized in the 60s. And I said, no, 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 no. This is wrong. And the reason it's wrong is because this album came out in 1989. So this photo was had to have been taken in 1989. So what I'm saying is, is that, believe it or not, different eras can exist in different, in the same time. So you can have people that think one thing, that knowledge is frozen and that my knowledge is fine, with people who think, no, there's a new condition and we have to study it and we have to analyze it. And the knowledge is moving, so we have to keep up. Right? So you can have these at the same time existing. 
And that's a stupid example, but I'll give you another example that's less stupid. There is an evidence of a battle that took place between Mesolithic people and Neolithic people. And this was a horrific battle where literally thousands of people died. And basically what it was, was the hunter-gatherers and the farmers decided to have it out. They decided to have a battle. And it's really horrific and really, really fascinating. And it's especially horrific when you see the, the evidence of the injuries. And you see that these people were brutalized. And they were so brutalized that they were brutalized even after death. And that's more evidence of how two eras can exist simultaneously. So we have essentially these two thought processes that exist simultaneously. This evidence of, you know, time is frozen and time is not frozen. And that's something that I think about a lot. And to tell you how strange it is to me that we live in this world where we think ideas don't matter, my ancestors, my mother's people, are French Huguenots. A French Huguenot was somebody who believed the Protestant, essentially the Protestant idea. Protestants were burned at the stake for believing something because the Catholics in charge thought that idea was so dangerous that they'd rather kill the people than have the idea running around. Think about that. Think about the fact that our ancestors thought some ideas were dangerous. So the next time you think that somebody has a wrong thought, think about how you having the idea that it's okay for them to have that inaccurate thought, right? It's okay for that inaccurate thought to exist is a sign of a golden age. It's a sign of a golden age that we don't live in anymore. And the reason we don't live in it is essentially because, I mean, look around. Think about how the world is different from 2001 to today. Think about how the sands beneath our feet, basically, especially the geopolitical sands, have sort of shifted and changed and altered. And some of that is through the Internet, but a lot of it is because of financial considerations on a truly global scale. And I think one of the things that COVID-19 is showing us is the fact that that golden age is actually over. And with that in mind, believe it or not, I'm having a pretty good day, and I hope you are too. This has been Ben Kitchings of the History Voyager, and y'all have a nice day. Bye-bye.